right, everybody, we are um, wrapping up this section of Genesis this morning. If you were here with us last week, uh, I had said that we're taking the flood story in two big chunks. There's a lot of little details in here that we could take weeks and weeks and weeks to mine through, but we uh, didn't. Um, we, we looked at some big ideas for the first half last week, and we're going to take a look at some big ideas for the second half this week. But if there is anything that you see in the text or anything that you have questions about, we are going to do Q&R at the end of the sermon this morning. So if you have questions, you can text them anonymously to that number, and we will take a look at them at the end. So remember, if you were here last week, that I said that the flood story is what's called a chiasm. It's a literary device that ancient Hebrew authors used where there are sections of the story. There's a first section and a last section, and they're very similar. And then there's a second section and a second to last section, and they're very similar. And there's a third section and a third to last section that's very similar. And it goes all the way down to the very center of the story. And that's the thing that the author really wants you to key in on. And in the, the, the Noah story, it's three chapters long, but it's this big literary masterpiece that focuses and focuses and focuses until you get to chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. Everything about this story is pointing to the goodness and grace and mercy of God. I think we forget that sometimes, especially when we're reading the Old Testament. We have this idea that God is angry and he's judgmental and he's violent and he's doing all this stuff. And you could point to the flood narrative and say, yeah, that seems that way. But we talked last week, God isn't really angry here. He's sad. He's grieved. That's what the text says. But even in the description of this event that destroys all of wicked humanity and reboots creation out of chaos, the very center of the story is mercy, grace. God remembered Noah. And so we look at verse one, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. So in the Bible, remembering is not necessarily about forgetfulness. We think God remembered Noah. Is that even, does that even make sense? Doesn't God know everything? How could God have forgotten about Noah? That's not what the word has to mean. Remembering is about focus. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, we read, Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Uh, the author of Ecclesiastes is asking us to remember things that have not happened yet, things that are happening in the future. And so it's not, it's not about forgetfulness. It's about pointing our focus to a specific thing. Bill Arnold in his Genesis commentary says, revolutionary acts of salvation and deliverance often ensue when God remembers someone in the midst of their pain or crisis, as with Abraham in Genesis 19 and Israel in Exodus 2. When God remembers, promises are kept, salvation delivered, old covenants renewed. So this is the pivot point in this story. It's been water increasing on the earth and wickedness being destroyed and creation falling away over and over and over again, and now we're going to go the other direction. God remembers Noah. 
And what does he do? He sends a wind to pass over the earth. And this is important. Think about this, a wind. In the Hebrew language, the word wind and spirit are the same thing. Same thing in the Greek language. When you read wind, it could mean spirit. Where was the last time we saw the spirit over the waters? Genesis chapter one. The second verse of the Bible, the earth was empty, void, and the spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. It's, it's the thing that kicks off the creation narrative. And what Moses is telling us here in, in chapter eight is that God is beginning his recreation. He has let the chaos waters destroy the world and now he's gonna build it back up again. If you're in a community group, John mentioned our community groups, we are studying the book of Acts and at least in, in the group at our house, we just talked about Acts chapter two last week. And in Acts chapter two, funny enough, the coming of the spirit sounds like a mighty rushing wind. Why? Because the people of God are being created at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is coming and the church is being birthed. New creation is happening. And the spirit of God is the actor that begins the new creation. And this is what we see here. God causes a wind to pass over the earth and the waters begin to subside. So I want to take a look at this section as a whole, and maybe we can learn something here. I don't think, I'm going to guess, while there, while there are many stories in this room, while there's a lot of pain in the lives that have been lived in this room, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, none of us are quite as traumatized as Noah and his family were. Maybe, maybe you disagree with me, uh, but Noah just witnessed the entire population of the world killed in a flood. Him and his wife and his sons and daughter-in-laws are the only people left. We kind of gloss over that, especially in Sunday school, because it's like a flannel board thing. But like, put yourself in Noah's shoes here. This is a heavy, heavy season. But Noah's crisis moment is instructive for us. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Genesis chapter 7, 11, verse 11 says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened. So this is not how the Hebrew calendar works, but I'm going to say that was February 17th, second month, 17th day of the month. February 17th. Genesis 7.24 says, and the waters surged on the earth for 150 days. You could also translate that triumphed over the earth. The waters were winning 150 days. That's five months. And then we read in Genesis 8.4, the ark came to rest on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. We're going to say that's July 17th. Okay. So the, the flood starts on February 17th. The ark rests on July 17th. That's five months. So here's a question. When does the ark rest on the mountains of Ararat? What, July 17th, right? Yeah. And what, did we, what does God's word say makes the waters start to recede? wind. So when does the wind start blowing? 
<laughs> That's right. It's a good answer. In order, I mean, it, it, let's think about it. The waters go up. The, the text says 20 feet above the highest mountains. And then they start to go down. And they go down for a while before the boat lands on Mount Ararat. So God begins his work of deliverance for Noah and his family through the wind days, weeks, maybe months before Noah even realizes it. Imagine being in the boat. There are no low windows. There is no way to look over. There's just one window at the top and all you see in every direction is water. Now the wind starts to blow and the water decreases. What does it look like from your perspective for the water to decrease? My guess is it doesn't look like anything. If it's water as far as you can see, you can't tell that this is happening, but God is at work through the wind long before Noah realizes that he is being saved. Gordon Wenham in his commentary says it like this, the chronology makes it clear that the 150 days mentioned fall between February 17th and July 17th, a period of about five months. In other words, although the waters appear to triumph for 150 days, they were actually falling well before the period elapsed or else the ark would not have grounded on July 17th. Presumably then, we are meant to understand that God remembered Noah and blew this wind long before July 17th. Yet to an ordinary observer, the waters appeared to be triumphing throughout this time. In reality, however, the stormy wind was bringing Noah's salvation. It was driving back the waters so that after five months afloat, the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat. How many of us in the middle of chaos, in the middle of pain, in the middle of trial, are calling out for God to do something, are calling out for God to move in our lives, and we don't see anything happening. But the reality is God is at work long before we can notice it. I think this is great. Even after the ark runs aground in the mountain in July, Noah is still left to himself until the following February without a word from God. God doesn't speak to Noah until verse 15. And so just imagine the the boat has run aground, but I don't know if the water's gone yet. I can't see over the edge of the boat. So Noah gives it a couple months. He doesn't hear from God. And then he decides to start sending birds out right? Maybe, maybe we can figure this out. Maybe, I need some data. I, I need to figure out what to do because God is not answering my prayers. I need, to, I need to work this out. And he sends the raven out and the, and the raven, you know, finds a place and then he sends the dove out and the dove can't land. And then the dove comes back a little later with an olive branch and, and so on. But all throughout this Noah doesn't hear God's voice. He's just trying to figure it out. And see, I wonder in the midst of whatever circumstance you are stuck in, with whatever, whatever questions you have right now, whatever brilliant ideas you've come up with to figure it out on your own, what if God is simply working by the power of his spirit in the background in ways that you can't comprehend yet? And the work that God is doing in your heart and in your soul 
is the work that God is deliberately being silent to accomplish. The trust, the rest, the security. Noah and his family have months to wait before God finally speaks again. And in that, they, all they can do is trust and hope. So then we move on to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. They got off the ark, and he took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. So I, I'm going to back up again to chapter 6, verse 5 says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. So we see here that at the beginning of this, God looks out at the world and sees that humanity is wicked, that people are evil and broken and the creation is spoiled. But then after the flood, he looks at humanity, the eight people that are left, and says, humanity is wicked. They're evil and broken. And the reason that God gives for flooding the world, the major problem that precipitates the flood, is still there after the flood is over. Because Noah and his family still exist. Evil is a problem of the heart. It doesn't primarily come from outside. We talked a couple weeks ago about how the sons of God came down and broke their boundary and, and, and contributed to the evil of the world. But humanity's brokenness, humanity's sin starts inside of us. You probably know this quote from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So what God is saying here is that in order for God to save humans, he has to put up with evil. It would have been easier for him to not save Noah and his family. He could have completely started over, but he is committed to his word, to his promises, and he will not give up on people. I like uh, to relax by watching uh, cooking shows on YouTube. And there's a, one particular channel who does a lot of fermented food, like sauerkraut and kombucha and pickled peppers and stuff like that. It's delicious. And the way this works is you, you take some food and you introduce a live bacterial culture to it and you let that culture kind of work its magic and grow and, and, and eat some sugars and, you know, do its digestive work and make bubbles and, and, and actually sour the food. 
But at every point, at every, at, at every recipe, there's some point where you have to stop it. You have to kill it or it will continue to just destroy the food. So if you want the fermentation process to generate sauerkraut, at some point you take the bacteria and you kill it. But that's the way evil works in our world, right? Evil is something that doesn't belong here, but it's something that was let in by human sin and it grows and it spreads. And if God wanted to get rid of it completely, he could kill it. But he is committed to his promise to humanity, even in our sin and brokenness. God's grace is all over this story. And the thing is, we, we're in a place where we are uh, looking out in the world, and, and I, love, I love this about our church. We are, if we, if we wanted to get really messy and talk politics for a few hours, we would realize that we are really evenly split along the political spectrum in this place. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful example of the unity of Christ. But no matter who you are and where you lean, you look out in the world and you go like, oh my gosh, everything's awful. And that's fair. Why doesn't God just come back and fix it all? Why doesn't, why doesn't he just take us home? When's the rapture? And I remember reading a, a pastor of, that I really respected um, and still do respect. He's at home with the Lord, but uh, he, he wrote in the early 1980s that he was pretty confident that Jesus was going to return in 1981 because the world was so bad. And frankly, I'm glad that he didn't because I was born in 1982. <laughs> and it's worth remembering as we, as we long for the return of Christ, and we should, that's a good longing, as we look out in the world and see how it's going to hell faster than ever maybe, that there are men and women that do not yet know Jesus. And God is not willing to give up on them. And so we should be people that are not willing to give up on them either. And only God knows the timing of his return. Only God knows when he will make all things right and it'll be the perfect time. But until that time, we have work to do. We have good news to share with everyone we know that Jesus saves and that there's hope in this world. So God says he's never going to flood the earth again. And then we read in chapter nine, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and every fish of the sea. They're placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I've given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. 
For God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread over the earth and multiply on it. And God said to Noah and his sons with them, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife on the earth that are with you. All the animals of the earth came out of the ark. I established my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. So this is the first time in scripture that we have this language of covenant. We're going to see it over and over and over again as you go through your Old Testament. You're going to read about various covenants with various people. And in the Bible, when you read about a covenant, you're almost always talking about an official legal arrangement between a greater party and a lesser party. Covenants are always God-initiated. People are never just like coming to God to work out a deal with him. That's not the way a covenant works. The covenants start with the greater party kneeling down to the, lo- the lesser party and working out an agreement for their benefit. And covenants have signs, reminders. The Noahic covenant this reminder is the rainbow. Michael Lawrence writes, a covenant is not merely a contract or a promise as we understand such things. Rather, it's a bond that establishes an all-encompassing relationship. A covenant is not merely a financial obligation or a military treaty. It's a claim on someone's total loyalty and allegiance. It has an authority structure to it with ongoing obligations, blessings, and curses. And what's more, it's generational. Lawrence is talking about a covenant with God. We we experience covenants with people to a lesser degree. We have a marriage covenant that is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman to to join their families together. We have in our church, we have a membership covenant. The members of our church covenant together to live lives together in community, to love one another, to support one another. Uh, Our church uh, network, uh, Church Venture Northwest, has a covenant for all of its churches. As a, as a church in CV Northwest, Revelation Church is a part of that covenant. But when God makes a covenant, God is always the greater party and the person is always the lesser party. And throughout the beginning of this section of this covenant, we're meant to think something specific about Noah. We're meant to read through these verses and go, hey, That sounds familiar because Noah is a second Adam. He's a new Adam. Noah and Adam, they both walk with God. They both mediate a covenant. They're both blessed. They're both given a special role in creation. They're commanded, both of them, to be fruitful and multiply. They each have three sons, one of which falls from grace. They both work the ground. Both of them sin with regard to the fruit of a tree. We're going to read about that next week for Noah. Both have animals brought to them. And both 
act as priests over creation. God gives Noah a new food rule and institutes another command with consequences that end in death. See, God is starting creation over. We talked about it last week, but the chaos waters undid creation and God is making it new with Noah as the new Adam. Noah is the representative here of all humanity and the covenant is made on behalf of everyone that will be born. And this is the refrain that you're going to see over and over and over again in the Hebrew Bible. Because most of us know this story. Most of us know more stories after this. But imagine for a second, this is the first time you've heard this. And we're just in chapter nine of a really long book and you don't know how it ends. Adam was the representative of overall creation. He was the one with his wife Eve that was charged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and cover it with the glory of God and rule and reign in partnership with Yahweh. And he blew it. And just a few chapters later, we see, oh wait, there's this new guy. He's righteous, he's good, he's, he's favored. God makes a covenant with him. Maybe he's the one that will defeat the snake. We're gonna find out real quick that that isn't to be, that Noah fails. But as we continue reading, we're gonna see Abraham positioned the same way. Maybe Abraham's the one. No, Abraham messes it up. Then maybe Moses, maybe Moses will do it. No, then maybe David, then maybe Solomon. And all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, these figures are positioned as possibly the one that is going to defeat the snake. And they all fail. And this is what makes the gospel such an amazing story. And we we miss it. I miss it because I'm so in the weeds when I read the Bible. But imagine for the very first time reading the Old Testament from cover to cover and going, it ends on a cliffhanger and there is no one who can fix the problem. Sin and death are everywhere and no one, no one can do it. But then we turn the page to Matthew we meet this guy named Jesus. And over and over and over again, at every single opportunity, Jesus passes the test. Jesus defeats the enemy. Jesus crushes the head of the snake. This is... This is the king we serve, church. Jesus, the one who crushed the head of the snake. As we look at the flood narrative, we we are given some tools that we can use as we study scripture. All throughout the Bible, we're gonna see as we study this idea of salvation and new life through the water. Creation is birthed out of this chaos water. 
creation is renewed and new life is given um, safety and salvation through the waters of the flood. We can read about the exodus of, of the people of Israel through, out of Egypt and they walk through the waters of the Red Sea to their salvation. Israel, Israel enters the promised land and walks through the waters of the Jordan River. Jonah, which I read a passage from the book of Jonah earlier. Jonah is, he brings salvation to the Ninevites by going through the water. The book of Isaiah talks about the floodwaters over and over again. These ideas in the Hebrew scriptures shape the idea of baptism. When we baptize someone, they are covered over by the waters and they are pulled out again to new life. Jesus in Luke 12, 50 says, but I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. Jesus is talking about his death. He's looking forward to his upcoming death on the cross and baptism in his mind is this idea of being covered by the waters of chaos and death. But see in the flood account in Genesis, the wicked die and the righteous one is spared. But in the case of Jesus, the wicked are spared because the righteous one sinks beneath the waters of death and chaos. We recognize that evil must be condemned and destroyed in order for God to live with his people in a good creation. And Jesus takes that evil on himself and he destroys it through his death on the cross by going through the chaos waters to new life on the other side. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit in which he also went to make proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. See, our baptism as Christians is our symbol of participation with Jesus in his passing through the chaos waters and into new life. And notice that, that Peter doesn't say, it's not that you get clean, your body doesn't get clean from dirt. It's a pledge of a good conscience toward God. Baptism doesn't save us, but it is a proclamation of what is going on in our hearts, which is allegiance to Jesus. Tim Mackey says it like this. In other words, if you allow yourself to go into the waters, you are participating willingly in the story of your helplessness, that I am a participant in the chaos. I'm going into the waters, trusting that God will bring me out alive through the other side as a new kind of human. And this is the invitation of the Christian experience, new creation life on the other side of the waters. I think Peter had Noah's flood on his mind as he wrote his first letter. I, it's an interesting exercise. If you have time, go read 1 Peter this week and be thinking about the flood story the whole time. But listen to how he ends 1 Peter. 
The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. I read that and I go, gee, thanks, Peter. But isn't that the story? Noah, get in the boat. I'm going to destroy the world. It's going to be rough for like a year. But there's going to be new creation on the other side. And we find ourselves in whatever position we are in as followers of Jesus today. And we ask these questions. Where are you, God? Why aren't you speaking to me? Why don't I know what to do with my life? How come this is happening? I need to send out some birds or something. I just, I need data. I need information. What do I do? Why is this so hard? but new life comes through the waters of chaos and death. The idea that that we are called to experience the life of Christ without suffering doesn't make any sense. The very act of pledging allegiance to Jesus through baptism shows what we are in for. There is no Christian life without suffering, because the only way to get to new life is to go through the waters of death. And while we on our own would succumb to the waters, we would succumb to death, we are, we are mortal, fragile people, and we would die. Jesus, the God-man, the King, he went through the waters of death on our behalf and came out on the other side because death could not hold him. And it's his life that we hold on to, which gives us the power to do the same thing. Let's take a look at a couple questions. How did Noah know which animals and birds he offered were clean since the law hadn't been given yet? That's a good question. So there's a couple ways to think about this. Um, The straightforward way, which I kind of lean towards, I think, is that there's a lot of like oral tradition and maybe even written tradition around before we get to Moses. The, you know, the, the five books of Moses that we have in our Bible, they were written and we have them, but that doesn't mean that there weren't other things written prior to that. And it doesn't mean that there wasn't an oral community of, of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters that passed on how to worship God well in the time before the law was written. Um, I, was, I was talking with um, a friend of mine and he, he mentioned that his opinion, um, I guess I should say that he's a, he's a theology professor, so that gives him some clout. His opinion is uh, that the first part of the book of Genesis was probably written by Adam himself. And that some of the other patriarchs that we, we don't have record of that, but, but this story is passed on from generation to generation. And the fact that there's no explanation of the sacrifices 
makes me think that, that by the time you get to Moses and he's writing this down, his audience would have just, they would have known what was up. They would have understood what was going on. Um, the, the other position that's, that, that you, you might take is that, the, um, that there are certain sections of Genesis that are um, edits from a later time, and I just don't think that that's a helpful way to see it. But I think we make a, an assumption about the sacrificial system that wasn't necessarily there because the, the text doesn't say that. Next question. If anyone's penalty who murders is to have their life taken, what about murderers who have walked away free or only serve a life sentence in prison? Or does this only refer to when God will have them die of natural causes? Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff in this text that is, is really interesting about murder. Um, the first, of, first thing to notice is in your Bible, it's probably um, indented which means it's a poem or a proverb. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll quickly understand that the book of Proverbs is um, really good advice that doesn't always work that way. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. How many people do we know where that just does not apply? Because Proverbs is a book of general wisdom, not absolute commands. And it's worth following but it's not necessarily going to work out that way. And it's possible that this section of Genesis is also a proverb. Jesus says something similar in Matthew. He says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Now, that doesn't always happen, but it's a way of Jesus saying, hey, the path of violence is going to go badly for you. So that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, is it simply a command that God is putting in place to mitigate against some of the disaster that we've already seen leading up to the flood? We saw uh, the, very, the very first sin after Eden was a murder, right? And, and we see in Genesis 6 that, that violence is spreading across the, the world and God is setting up some roadblocks so that violence is kept at a minimum. So then we get to... 21st century America, and we talk about our criminal justice system, which is a big discussion. The way I would look at this text, because I think the way of Jesus supersedes the Old Testament, right? He said he's, he's come to fulfill the law. Um, I believe that Jesus calls us as Christians to nonviolence. I don't believe that Christians are supposed to kill people. We can go to Romans 13 where it says it's the government's job to do that, and, and that's fine. But as we think through what our posture should be towards those that commit wickedness, we recognize that our king was the victim of the greatest act of wickedness and violence and murder in the history of the world. And yet he looks at those that kill him and he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And without getting into a, a much more complicated um, discussion of nonviolence, I think the, that Jesus reshapes our understanding of retribution 
um, in, and gives us an ethic of love and forgiveness that goes above and beyond that. I don't know if that totally answers your question. There's a really good book in the library called Fight about uh, a Christian's perspective on violence. Um, and this verse is in it. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion. But overall, I think what God is doing is he's setting up some guardrails so that the humans that multiply after the flood um, don't immediately grow super violent and destroy each other in the same ways that they had initially. Okay, we're going to take communion. We take communion every week. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a member of a covenant, not just Noah's covenant. You're a member of a different covenant. It's a covenant that's instituted by God, built on his promises, by his power, and in his name. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah... This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jeremiah says, this is the new covenant. And we saw that covenants come with signs. Noah's covenant came with the sign of the rainbow. So what's the sign of Jeremiah's new covenant? Luke 22, Jesus says, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We are, we are covenant people, not because we're smart, not because we figured stuff out, but because God chose in his grace to come down to us and initiate a relationship with us when we didn't have one. And communion is the covenant sign of that. And every week we take communion together to remind ourselves that we are Christ's people. And so as we sing, I invite you to come and take the bread and take the cup. There's juice and wine as your conscience dictates. Take it back to your seat and spend some time reflecting on where you're at, where you're struggling, how maybe you feel like God's not answering. Think about how maybe God might be working in the background with you not even realizing it. And Christian, rejoice in the fact that you are a member of a covenant that God instituted on your behalf that he will not go back on. You are beloved. You have been brought through the waters of death to new life. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't... Um, Put your trust in, your allegiance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can do that. You can do it today. It doesn't take a ceremony. It doesn't take great deeds of strength. All it takes is your heart saying, I can't 
do it myself. I can't go it alone. The things that I have wrought are broken and they're leading me to death. Jesus, I need you. I need your life to replace mine. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you to do that. Speak to the Lord. Commit yourself to following him. And if you do that today, tell somebody about it. Come talk to me about it or or John or, or somebody that you came with. But know that the the promise of Christ is new life through the waters, through the chaos, through the death and destruction. And and we are people that, that should be prepared for that. And the good news is, as we, as we recognize that that's the role that we've been given to play, God will be glorified in that, and, and we will actually be fulfilled as his people. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene Podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.